Commenting on current events is normally out of our purview, but it's impossible to go about as normal while Ukraine is being invaded. It should go without saying that Putin's war is a human catastrophe for tens of millions of Ukrainian people who are being bombarded in their homes or forced to flee into neighboring areas or countries. Please check out our show notes. We've linked a number of organizations which you can financially support that are getting medical supplies to Ukraine, helping children, and supporting refugees. This last group we should mention are now numbered over a million. Directly supporting the victims of this war is obviously the most important thing, but if you happen to have the ability to send the money, please also consider supporting local journalist organizations whose reporters are risking their lives to show us what's happening there. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garismovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, uh, just, you know, usual stuff, destroying worlds, selling merch, a lot of selling of <laughs> podcast merch. Usual. What worlds? Should I be concerned? Or am, I, am I implicated? No, my own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough, all right. My own under the crippling weight of my unfinished assignments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, uh, in addition to Matt's world-destroying powers, I am Cameron Lalana, and I don't have anything nearly that big, but I will say that I've, I've recently become a much more, um, I don't know what the term is, superstitious, because uh, one of my, the, the members of uh, the TTRPG group that I'm in convinced me to buy a, quote, dice dragon, which is just like a little dragon plushie that you can store dice in, and ever since I got it, I've been rolling worse than usual, unless I put the dragon on my shoulder and let it sit on there like a cat, then I roll great. So now I can only roll dice when I have a a plushy dragon sitting in my shoulder and I, I i don't know what this means for me but i feel like this is the start of some kind of downward spiral hmm. i don't understand and i don't i'm looking at the script of what you wrote and i don't even understand how you got that from the script you wrote <laughs> this nice dragon there's so many layers into this <laughs> yeah the script just says christian comic book obsession which maybe i'll talk about next week <laughs> all right glad to know you're stockpiling them in advance <laughs> well this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to find out exactly how attractive Raskolnikov and his sister are, respectively, in part three of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Uh, I've dubbed this the hot sister chapter because there's <laughs> just far, far too many references uh, for, for my taste here. Yeah, I got it. Matt texted me. I don't I was I think I was out at dinner and I got like a text about I forgot that this is the hot sister part of the book. And I, I lost my shit first of all. But secondarily, I started reading it and did not realize like, you don't get that much description of most characters except for Dunya. Just we'll we'll get into it. But it's, it's a very apt title. It's, it's great. This is a great part. <laughs> I was endlessly amused. As we all should be. Well, speaking of endless amusement, before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking? I am drinking a rye whiskey, nice. Templeton rye. Uh, I don't understand it. It tastes fine. It burns like whiskey, but it smells like an IPA. Interesting. I'm concerned, but it's it's fine. I mean, if it gets you there. It's fine. I'm, I'm moving forward. <laughs> what, what about you? What are you drinking? So I'm trying to stay on brand by drinking things that are roughly pulled from the book. Uh, so I am drinking what I'm going to loosely call punch. Uh, it's actually just orange juice and uh, tamarind vodka, so I guess you could actually more accurately call it a screwdriver, but I mean, punch, screwdriver, it's all jungle juice in the end, so. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> well, before we get into today's episode and before we get um, messy drunk, Matt, we've got some exciting news. Yes, indeed, Cameron, we have a new patron uh, this month, which is really exciting. Our new patron, Julie, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you are interested in supporting the show like our new pal, Julie, you can go ahead and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much, Julie. Well, thank you, Cameron, for those updates. I really am I'm looking forward to hearing your recollection, your summary of the hot sister chapter. <laughs> I feel like we're really building this up. As I mean, as we should be. This is... Um... You know, I, I won't. I won't exactly call this one-handed writing, but it it is. Um, it's it's interesting. So let's talk about it. I'm building it up so I can sell you merch with this slogan <laughs> on it. Actually, that's what I'm doing. 
<laughs> the day the day I wake up and we have a shirt that just says something about the hot sister chapters the day that I maybe have to distance myself from the podcast. <laughs> have to go several ways, creative differences. <laughs> uh, well, that'll, that'll be appropriate for uh, it happening during the Crime and Punishment series, I think. It would be. <laughs> well, let's talk about part three of Crime and Punishment. Um, so there's actually more in here than, than, than the learning about how attractive Raskolnikov's sister Dunya is, although we do get like, I think maybe a full page about that. So we'll, we'll get to it. But as you may recall, last episode, we left off with Raskolnikov returning to his room with Razumikhin and finding his mother and sister there. Now he's, he's quite tortured by their presence, which is, as you might imagine, not exactly what his family's hoping for. His mother notes that his expression revealed an agonizingly poignant emotion, and at the same time something immobile, almost insane. Without much, um, I will say, family love, considering that they haven't seen each other in about three years, uh, Raskolnikov almost immediately launches into, uh, into Dunya about her upcoming marriage with Luzhin, um, kind of interrogating her on her reasoning and telling her that you know, I may, I know you think you may be doing this for me, but when it comes down to it, you know, I, I may be a bad first person for demanding this, but you, there's only room for one bad person in your life. It's me or Lucian. If you marry him, I, I will turn away from you forever, which obviously Dunya, uh, quite caring for her brother, does not does not love hearing. In the midst of all this, Rosemichin, it continues to be just the the, the voice of reason uh, and she quickly shuffles Dunya and um, Pulcheria out of the room, uh, telling them that, that uh, you know, Raskolnikov, he's been ill. I know you've heard about that from Nastasia. Um, like he's he's kind of he's delirious, right? He's he's not quite himself right now. It's worth noting that, as we mentioned last time, Razumikin has just moved to this part of town with his uncle and was having a party, and so he and, and his buds were drinking. Uh, importantly, punch, and is is still pretty blasted. He is pretty, as the kids say these days, he's pretty Baja blasted now. On a scale from one to Yeltsin, Cameron. <laughs> He is. I'm gonna put it in terms uh, my peanut brain could understand. <laughs> on a scale of one to Yeltsin, I'm gonna give him an, an eight. We're not quite at like a full Yeltsin, okay. but like at no point does okay. Rosmi can like demand that um, the the Raskolnikovs give him Europe. So that's true. He doesn't no. do that. However, he is a completely different character. <laughs> Dare I say improved? Dare I say? I think I think we could all agree. So <laughs> what we mean by that is he he basically takes Dunya and Pulcheria and says, let me walk you back to your, to the place you're staying. Because he tells them, not pulling any punches, Lucian did not put you up in a good part of town. Let me walk you back just to, so you've, you've got some accompaniment through the dangerous streets of St. Petersburg. And of course, um, while walking back, while quite drunk, he is unable to hold in his feelings about Lucian and goes off on quite a tangent about how he feels about Lucian and his faux intellectual tendencies, etc., etc. The plot kind of notes that he's uh, not explicitly doing this because he's almost immediately fallen in love with Dunya, but kind of basically that's the reason. Dunya and Pulcheria aren't really certain how to feel about this strange man who is very drunk and insulting Dunya's fiancé, but... But from what they do know from Nastasia, Rosumikin has done quite a bit for Raskolnikov, so they kind of resolve to trust him. Rosumikin, after bringing them back to their apartment, tells them, hey, look, I'm going to go check on Raskolnikov. I'm going to go get the doctor who's been attending him, Zosimov. He's at my party. We're going to have Zosimov stay the whole night with Raskolnikov. I will give you updates, etc., etc. Let, let me let me go do that for you. And he takes off and then initially brings Zosimov back to give the Pulcheria Dunya a report on Raskolnikov before taking Zosimov back. Uh, to the the where Raskolnikov is staying, and uh, Zosimov happens to note. I don't. I don't actually. I don't remember exactly where we get a physical description of Dunya. I think it might be in chapter two, uh, but Zosimov uh, calls Dunya, at least in the English translation, quite fetching, which immediately sets Razumikhin Rus- <laughs> off. Um, it, it's it's becomes quite clear that he he has uh, um pretty much immediately fallen for Dunya. Um, and and is, is quite angry at Zosimov for even implying that he might also be attracted to Dunya. Yeah, I enjoyed this this absolute elaborate and unnecessary schedule that Resumekin has arranged for this. Like he's he's reported back to them 
in what is presumably some distance away from Raskolnikov twice in like an hour. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's great. He has Zosimov come by to give them a report of what he's already basically told them. After leaving his own party. It's also noted that this is very funny, <laughs> right? It's also, I think this is very funny. Zosimov also finds Dunya so attractive that he only looks at Pulcheria while <laughs> delivering the report and it is clapping himself on the back for, for how restrained he is as a doctor. <laughs> That he didn't, didn't even look at Dunya the whole time he was in the apartment. Phenomenal, doctor. <laughs> truly the height of medicine. Uh, I, you know, I know on average in the U.S. today, um, medical outcomes for women, or especially women who who've um, been being treated by male surgeons, are worse than women who are treated by um, surgeons who are women. These these stats are true for Zosimov, and maybe far worse, and are almost definitely <laughs> actually far worse, even for things much less serious than yeah. than uh, surgery. Yeah, just having a woman in his presence, I think, will do... De- well, I don't know what I really thought his outcome was going to be anyways. I wasn't too optimistic, <laughs> let's be honest. I think the only thing he's done is give Raskolnikov a powder? Yes. And uh, say he's devolving into a madman, so... <laughs> no, no, he says his powder kept Raskolnikov from being a madman. Ah, yes. A, a very rational way of approaching it. <laughs> well, so... Zos- Razumikhin leaves uh, Zosimov uh, with the landlady of Raskolnikov's apartment, giving Zosimov a lot of advice on, on how to deal with her all, all night, um, and then takes off. The next morning, Razumikhin wakes up, and now sober is like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have said all those things I said last night, uh, just referring to everything in general. And uh, is quite ashamed at, at himself, so he briefly meets with Zosimov, who notes that the landlady did not speak to him even slightly over the course of the night, uh, rendering like two pages of advice basically meaningless uh, before uh, Rosumikin heads off to talk to Pulcheria and Dunya around 10 o'clock. He enters rather timidly, expecting them to be somewhat angry, but actually finds them to be uh, expecting him and in fact looking forward to his visit, asking him, you know, tell us about Raskolnikov. It's been three years since we've, we've really seen him and we've only known him through letters. Rosumikin describes Raskolnikov's character and despite his obvious affection for Raskolnikov, uh, kind of kind of does my man dirty. Actually, no, I, I take that back. He describes him accurately. Um, <laughs> anyone else would call that doing your friend dirty, but um, it's, it's an accurate description of Raskolnikov's character. And I like that he said he was, uh, he said he, earlier he was kind of, you know, he's, he's not doing well. He's because of his, his melancholic mood. And I was like, I don't know, it kind of sounds like he was always like this. This is maybe worse, but I, doesn't sound like uh, doesn't sound like the best kind of friend to begin with. No, <laughs> he even at one point uh, says that Raskolnikov is almost alien in in how distant he is. But sometimes he's not just alien; he's just cold. But it's like he's two people going from completely alien to just mildly cold, which is what you do love in a friend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Pulcheria is not yeah, super jazzed about this description, but does thank Rosmikin for describing her son to her. Uh, before sharing with Rosmikin a note from Lucian. And um, keep in mind, the last time we saw Lucian was when Raskolnikov basically, they had a discussion about uh, ideologies. Raskolnikov basically threatened physical violence against Lucian. Uh, Lucian didn't love that and took off. Uh, so Lucian is now, uh, he, he skipped meeting Pulcheria and Dunya at, when they arrived. He was supposed to meet them this morning, but again, has skipped that. And it just instead sent them a note saying, hey, let's have dinner later. We need to talk about some things. I'm quite mad about the way I was treated by Raskolnikov. And I, I should add, Raskolnikov the other day, despite saying he's ill, was actually out cavorting with a dead man and his, his and a woman who has, let me, let me find the exact term he calls him. Uh, he refers to Sonia as a woman, a young woman of notorious behavior uh, and, and says that he gave her 25 rubles, all the rubles that Pulcheria had worked so hard to get as a loan implying that um, Raskolnikov had spent all this money that Pulcheria had suffered to get instead of on, on, on essential goods as, as like payment to uh, Sonia. And he, he says, basically, I do not want to see Raskolnikov when we meet for dinner. Keeping that in mind, they, they take off. Uh, and now at this point, it's also worth mentioning that um, Pulcheria is, is pretty fond of uh, Rosumikin, uh, and she's now referring to him by his, his first name and his uh, patronymic, which is a respectful way to refer to someone. Even goes so far as to start having casual conversation about things that Rosamikin could not possibly know, assuming that he's been in their life for longer than like half a day. Uh, mentioning, importantly for us, uh, that Marfa Petrovna, uh, remember that Marfa Petrovna is Svidrigailov's wife, uh, who initially accused uh, Dunya of trying to uh, seduce Svidrigailov before realizing that Svidrigailov was in fact trying to blackmail Dunya into a sexual relationship. Uh, um, she's, she's died. Eventually, they arrive at Raskolnikov's room and find him relatively lucid, although 
as Osimov kind of mentions that he's had not a lot of luck getting him to talk so far. But as soon as his family arrives, Raskolnikov is is pretty much just just chatting. He's he's happy to talk to them. Zosimov tries to talk about some of his medical theories, but everyone pretty much ignores him and considers it bad bad taste. Yep. Pulcheria in, in, uh, engages with her son more, talking about some of the things that she didn't really understand, especially focusing on Raskolnikov's uh, attempted marriage proposal to the landlady's daughter, to which Raskolnikov kind of tells her, I don't really know why I proposed to her. I can't really name a reason why I was attracted to her, but he, he notes that she was weak or she was very sickly. And that was basically what attracted him to her. And he said it would have even been better if she had been, if she had been, uh, as he, in his words, lame or hunchback. And he suspects he might have even been more in love with her in that case. His mother doesn't entirely know how to take this, so they basically move on, as as families do when you don't know what to do with your kid. I miss the good old days when the kids were the problem. You know, <laughs> now I gotta go home, and I'm like, what do I do with my family on the holidays? You know, just gotta, you know, move on from whatever comment that was at the dinner table. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> so speaking of... In- oh, fathers and sons. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of interesting comments made by parents, um, we move on to, again, Raskolnikov brings up his anger at Dunya's marriage uh, marriage proposal from Lucian and, and tells her again, like, I know you think you're doing this for me, but it's it, don't do this. Dunya strikes back at him and says, yeah, you're, you're a little self-centered for thinking that this is all about you. I am looking to have fine stability in my life. Um, and the, for that reason, I would like to marry Lucian. And if it benefits my family, even better. But this is not actually all about you. Pulcheria basically stays out of this and notes, um, I, okay, we must have definitely passed this part. So previously at some point, there's like a whole page about how attractive Dunya is. Um, there's also like half a page about how attractive Pulcheria is. This whole family is apparently just really hot. Uh, <laughs> yep. worthwhile noting, but Dunya is, is every, no one, basically no one else, like Raskolnikov has, has had barely any physical description. I, I don't know remember where it is exactly, but there's a whole page about how, how good Dunya's smile is, how inviting it is, like the shape of her mouth, the fact that she has a small mouth, uh, which I think also Sonia has. So I think that's revealing some interesting things about Dostoevsky himself. But Dunya is, is remarkably attractive. And Pulcheria thinks, you know, Dunya is, again, remarkably attractive. But in fact, Raskolnikov, even more attractive. Um. <laughs> Somehow even hotter. Where does it stop? <laughs> Is there a third sibling somewhere? <laughs> the third sibling had to be locked away because they were just like, they're, they're inhumanly attractive. They're like, this cannot possibly be, this has to be like an alien, right? Like, I, I like this, but not the, not the hot family part, the other part that you're just talking about. Which part? Uh, where Raskolnikov and Dunya are getting into it a little bit because the whole book is just Raskolnikov. Just, God, he's so annoying sometimes when, like she says, it really is very self-centered. I don't, I don't know if you you bought Dunya's kind of remark to him, but hmm. we don't really get any direct words from her until now about the marriage. Right. It's very much just Raskolnikov assuming that she's doing this for him, um, and him kind of projecting this idea of her onto yeah. her, well, onto her, onto us uh, as the reader, since he's basically very much limiting what we're getting from the narration perspective. Right. And I think it's interesting that the way this is being framed right now is that um, Dunya and Pulcheria really don't know Raskolnikov because it's been three years. So in many ways, they're coming to meet their their brother slash son. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, because this is mostly from Raskolnikov's perspective, we're supposed to uh, believe that he has an immediate insight, immediate and completely accurate insight into why Dunya just does things, yeah. even though the reverse relationship is one of do I really know my brother at all, frankly? Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to pay attention to. Anyway, so uh, the, the the hot Raskolnikov family aside. <laughs> uh, how, how did we get here? Um, <laughs> We've been on this road for a while. <laughs> I think we're like the biggest um, R- Russian language. We, we, we are the biggest Russian uh, literature podcast, and we're bringing such, such uh, high-minded concepts as no one ever talks about mm-hmm. how hot Raskolnikov is. Nobody frequently does. I don't. I don't know what Bookstagram's been up to, but they missed. They missed that quote. It, Twitter right now is all about. Every time I open up Twitter, uh, it's all about how hot Chekhov is. And yeah, I get it. He's a real person. But oh yeah, <laughs> no one. No no discourse about how. If hot... You see one colorized photo of Chekhov in there. It's gonna just circulate on my Twitter for years <laughs> to come. That's it. People have one picture of Stalin as a young man, and that's been like haunting me for my entire life. So. Hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. to be fair, it is a hot picture of Stalin. It's a hot picture of, of Chekhov. Um, don't take those out of context. Sorry, I'm already clipping them out of context. 
<laughs> okay. Well, we did say this was going to be the messy episode. Yeah, it is. It has to be. <laughs> so, in the midst of this 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 uh, argument between Raskolnikov and Dunya, uh, Pulcheria pulls out the letter from Lucian, which later she earlier showed to Rosamikin, and says, "Hey, what do you think of this?" Raskolnikov reads and says, "Well, this letter isn't terribly educated." And and even even the resume can actually defends <laughs> Lucian on this grounds and says, "Look, it's not terribly literary, but this is pretty common business language." Uh, and then Raskolnikov is like, "I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not trying to criticize him. I'm just saying it's not super educated. I mean, business language isn't really educated. It's just you know." I put I put an F in chat next to that <laughs> one actually in my book. Um, the way that he dunks on legal language, it's funny. It's funny because I almost went to law school. <laughs> <laughs> Another reason Dostoevsky would have would have would have uh, written a lot of if you had been in his sphere of influence, he would have written a lot of uh, uh, anti mat tracts. Oh, absolutely, hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> percent. So as this chapter comes to an end, uh, Raskolnikov contextualizes the money he gave to the Marmoladov, saying it was you know I know what he's implying here, but I I give it to them not for any ulterior motive but only to pay for the funeral he says apparently in the letter i gave it for the funeral but no i, I did give it for the funeral and it says you know if you'll let me i, I would like to come to dinner and pulcheria says that's perfect that's what i was hoping for and and actually she says rosamikin you should come as well so it's a it's a big fun happy family dinner rosamikin you are objectively the least attractive person in this room come to the dinner with us. <laughs> So at, at this point in time, um, Sonia Marmaladov enters the room and immediately feels quite awkward. She is she expected to be coming here alone and and seeing that there are a number of people here, especially Pulcheria and Dunya. And it's noted by Rosamikin earlier that although Pulcheria and Dunya are dressed quite poorly, they they're obviously their their clothing is full of holes. They they obviously look like they're not well to do. There's a certain way they carry themselves, which makes them seem to have a high station. It demands respect. Well, they're also not prostitutes, importantly. It's very looked down upon at this time, as you may imagine to be having any interaction with prostitutes, which is why she has to, you know, sleep in a different house. Yes, she's supporting her entire family, but yeah. can't can't even talk to them. Right. Yeah. Interestingly, Sonia also gets an entire page of description of her physical character. Um, I'm not saying it's a little bit weird that um, no one gets any descriptions except for Sonia and Dunya, but I'm saying it's a little weird that only they get descriptions and when they get descriptions they get like full pages of descriptions <laughs> uh again sonia has a very small mouth there's a lot of other things that's mentioned about her i just i just <laughs> find that that's just a weird detail that just keeps I getting like brought that up that's the only detail <laughs> i just there's that's stuck in your head everything else is like pretty unique to the character but like every time he's like talking about how attractive a woman is he just keeps bringing up her like their small mouths i just think that's a weird thing i don't think he's talking about how attractive sonia is I think he just has a thing for this type. <laughs> Small-mouthed women? That's, no, like, she, the description talks about how she's really not attractive. But the implication is like, eh. <laughs> what, what's the implication you of know. that? What does that mean? Eh, you know, why not? <laughs> it's like, because it's like the girl that he was engaged to. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, underlying psycho, um, psychosexual things to analyze here. Um I'm just gonna move on past. Yeah, this is a really weird part of the book. It's, it is weird. I, I, okay. I just so Sonia comes in and feels quite awkward about the company she's in there. But Raskolnikov does his best to make her feel at peace and and like make her feel welcome there. Uh, she thanks him for the money he gave them and basically tells them we're gonna have a funeral for my father. Uh, we really, uh, you know, I hope and Katerina Ivanovna hope that you would come. We want you to know that without your money, we could not have done this at all. And they chat for a bit. At this point, Pulcheria and Dunya decide they should step out and, and leave them to it and, and go about their day. Um, and, and they do. Um, Pulcheria, as she's leaving, notes that Dunya and Raskolnikov are pretty much mirrors of each other. Um, they're, they're basically the same child in, in the way they behave. Um, and, and outwardly uh, worries about Raskolnikov's association with Sonia, uh, basically internalizing what Lucian has said about her. And then Dunya snaps at, at her mother, saying that Lucian is a slanderer which apparently breaks Pulcheria's heart. Raskolnikov asks uh, Rosamikin, still in the room, to take him to uh, Rosamikin's relation, Porfiry, who, we should note, Porfiry is a renowned... He's not exactly a detective, but he, he solves... He's a lawyer who solves crimes. He's quite good at this. Uh, and he notes to Rosamikin that he previously, with the pawnbroker, pledged a few things, including his father's watch, which he would really like to get back. Rosamikin, who has not exactly had suspicions, but has had has been paying attention to the weird things Rosamik 
Raskolnikov has been doing in relation to the murder. Finally, it was like, oh, 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 that makes so much sense. You want to get your pledges back. I Now, when you're talking about that in your sleep and such, I, I see why you did that. Because before, when you did that and also confessed to murder to some um, Zamyatov, I kind of thought, I mean, I obviously didn't believe, but I thought that was weird. kind of thought you did the murder. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that you kept admitting to it was kind of weird to me, but, you know. Yeah. But now that you say that you... you give the pledges that makes total sense i i see you couldn't possibly be a murderer perfect logical reasoning <laughs> so raskolnikov tells sonia hey um look I'll, I'll chat with you later today uh, i'll come over to your place and he takes off sonia it's it should be noted is followed home by a mysterious figure she notices the mis- mysterious figure by the time he's well walk following her up her stairs to her room uh, before he says oh uh you must be my neighbor i'm just you know staying here don't worry about me i'm just just a neighbor i'm friendly i'm not a threat um, she just doesn't, doesn't love that explanation. As Raskolnikov and Rosamikhin are heading to Porfiry's, uh, Raskolnikov is teasing Rosamikhin indirectly about, about Rosamikhin's crush on Dunya, which <laughs> Rosamikhin is getting very heated about. Raskolnikov mentally is going over how he hopes that this conversation is going to make Porfiry feel more positive towards them. So he enters Porfiry's room with a sense of mirth. When he enters, he finds not only Porfiry, but also the head clerk of the police, Zemyatov, who, again, Raskolnikov admitted his his crime to at dinner one night. Oops. You know, just, just crime things. Just true crime podcast things. <laughs> so Raskolnikov tells Porfiry why he's there, and he says, uh, you know, he gives him the reasoning about the pledges, and Porfiry is strangely cold about it. He tells Raskolnikov, I can't really help you, but write it down. And in fact, even notes further that it's a little bit weird that you're the last person to have stepped forward. We actually know everyone's pledges because the pawnbroker wrote down everyone's names down on it. And Raskolnikov kind of kicks himself and says, I, I think he suspects me. Uh, this was maybe a mistake, um, which thankfully this awkward conversation, briefly, is saved by Raskolnikov, by, by Razumikhin, who uh, is led into a conversation about the dinner party he had the other night and, and goes off about the uh, socialists at his party who kept who kept saying that all crimes are based on environmental considerations, that no crime is an inherent problem of the person, but rather it's committed almost by the environment. This is where we're, again, Dostoevsky is kind of engaging with the rationalist theories of his day, especially Chernyshevsky's of what is to be done, in which that is that argument is essentially made. I'm not saying Chernyshevsky is the only person saying it or the only person that Dostoevsky is responding to in writing this, but that's the big one for us, at least. He's the main one. Rosamikin goes on for quite a while about this. We'll get into that more later. Porfiry, interestingly, actually defends that assertion to an extent and says, yeah, I think to an extent you could say that the environmental considerations are actually the reason for for some crimes. And then kind of says, you know, interestingly, Raskolnikov, actually, I know that you wrote an article for a newspaper about a year ago, which was published a couple months back, about crime and about your theory of all humans being able to be divided into two camps. The normal people who are basically exist to reproduce themselves reproduce their existence and the kind of superman who exists to create new eras in human existence and you assert that these supermen are permitted to do anything right raskolnikov is actually surprised that this was even published he thought the people he had sent it to uh, that the magazine had gone under but says well that's actually not quite what i'm arguing so i left a lot of my argument to implication which of course is what you want from an argument um (laughs) The main thrust of it being an implication. Can we just appreciate how deep into the citations this man got <laughs> to find this article that went to a failed publication, got bought by another one, then got republished, and its own author didn't even know that it was actually published? And additionally, it's Raskolnikov's name isn't even attached to it. I think it's just his initials. His initial, yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, Porfiry, quite good at that, the technical part of his job. A real Hercule Por- Poirot. I don't know how to say Hercule Poirot's name. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you made a public attempt at that. <laughs> I've I've read Agatha Christie before. Uh, not not any. Her- I'm not going to say his name anymore because I don't. I'm, I'm no longer confident in it. No, no, none of those novels. But uh, Raskolnikov it defends his assertion and says, "Look, a lot of it was an implication." And when I'm talking about my Superman theory, I'm not saying that the so-called Superman are get to commit crimes wantonly. Like you just get to commit crimes if you're Superman. I'm saying that in order to advance human society, essentially, you are going to have to negate existing rules because all societies are based on building rules over generations and generations. So those, quote, great men who create a new era, essentially, are always going to be opposing those ancient rules. And and, and therefore, great men are always going to be inherently criminal 
criminal in the sense that they are opposing extant rules. And he says that this is a good thing uh, because, in, in, in fact, these great men are progressing history. And yes, maybe some wrongs will have to be committed in order to progress this because, of course, there are going to be a great mass of innocent people defending the old order. Um, but the old order is going to have to be overthrown by these, quote, great men. And he asserts that the murderer and the, the doing of bloodshed is not a good thing, but it's sometimes a necessary thing. And asserts that this should not be done joyously, but rather these great men must have great weight on their heart by doing this. Porphyry, you know, hears him out uh, and then kind of switches the conversation over to talking to Raskolnikov about the events of the crime. And in fact, even tries to, to catch Raskolnikov by asking him some questions that only the murderer could know. Raskolnikov notices this and just, you know, avoids this more or less and theoretically manages to avoid implicating himself for now. Raskolnikov and Rosumikin take off uh, to meet Polcheria and Dunya for dinner. Uh, Rosumikin, quite angry about Porfiry's implications. Raskolnikov is kind of even calming him down and says, hey, look, go off to dinner. I'll meet you in about half an hour. I just need to do something real quick. Heads back to his room and finds a strange man there. Uh, who the porter is showing Raskolnikov's room. The strange man, immediately upon seeing him, takes off. Uh, when Raskolnikov catches up to him, the man just turns around and proclaims Raskolnikov to be a murderer before running off into the night. Raskolnikov, at this point, returns to his room, falls asleep, uh, oversleeps dinner, and, and begins to think on a variety of topics, how he really feels about his family, and including a feeling of hatred towards them, whether or not he's a historical transgressor in the theory of his Superman, or he just killed an old woman. Um, you know, he, he even dreams that he is again killing, killing the pawnbroker, although now she refuses to die and laughs at him in his attempt. And upon waking, he finds that he's not alone. Uh, and upon asking the stranger who he is, uh, the man introduces himself as Arkady Ivanovich Svidrigailov. And things get worse from here. But that is where part three ends. Thank you, Cameron. That was a great summation of the hot sister, hot family <laughs> chapter. I hate that. I hate that title, but it's not entirely incorrect. It's the hot Petersburg summer, baby. <laughs> can you can you take us over to the can we go over to the to the to the Crystal Palace now? Yes, let's talk about the Crystal Palace. So you may at this point be familiar with the Compromise Corner, but it turns out corporate didn't love that name. No, corporate got really angry. They sent us a lot of carrier pigeons. Yeah, I, I mentioned that previously our lawyer has been leaving dead pigeons on my on my doorstep, but that actually has been <laughs> uh, elevated to um, just like pictures of my face with a lot of uh, strange and arcane symbology mm -hmm. uh, nailed to my door, and I, I feel like strange prickling sensations across my body throughout nights and throughout the night, and I suspect that maybe maybe some kind of dark magic, which I don't quite care for. So we've changed it to the Crystal Palace, a nice and neutral name which could not have any implications at all whatsoever <laughs> exactly so matt i have to ask you what's in the crystal palace well in the crystal palace there are all sorts of wonders that you may be able to find uh my most important and my favorite thing in the crystal palace is pie and my favorite kind of pie cameron i gotta tell you it is lingo pie lingo pie is the world's only language learning application that uses real tv shows and movies to help you learn a language the idea is to make language learning as simple as watching your favorite TV show. They use real TV shows and movies from the language you want to learn. Each show comes with subtitles in the original language, uh, and every word, phrase, or slang is clickable to give you an instant translation in real time to help you learn. After you watch an episode, you can easily review all of your new vocab and grammar rules with their built-in flashcards and word lists. LingoPie is great for all levels from beginner to advanced great content and language learning tools appropriate for everyone. Head on over to learn.lingopie.com slash tipsytolstoy or click the link in our description to find out more. Yes, great service. Uh, as you've heard previously, at least twice before now, we also want to talk about Libro.fm. Now, if you are reading along with us, we heartily recommend Libro.fm because it makes it possible for you to buy audiobooks through your local bookstore giving you the power to keep money within your local economy, create jobs, and make a difference in your community. Whether you are paying for a monthly membership, giving an audiobook gift to a friend, or buying audiobooks for yourself or your organization, Libro.fm splits the profits from your purchases with your local bookstore. They've got many of the books we've read readily available on their site, including Crime and Punishment, and what better way to experience the hot family chapter than with some sweet dulcet tones. Uh, so check this- oh, so steamy. <laughs> Uh, check the show notes for more information on both of these links. And once you've made your community better with buying through Libro.fm through our affiliate links, uh, you know, after that, we can go back to learning about making our communities worse uh, with murder <laughs> in crime and punishment. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's talk about murder and crime and punishment. God, please, please. 
Where do you where do you even where do you start? Where do you start? Where where do you start? When you read this, I, you mentioned to me before that this actually I know we kind of like joked on how part two is not everyone's favorite and it's a bit of a transitory setting up later stuff, but you really like this. Can you can you talk to that? Cameron, I would love to. Um I actually think that this part is kind of the now, it, it has been a little bit of time since I've read all of this, um, but from my recollection, part three is really kind of the ideological core of the book. You're really getting kind of the main argument of the book, or the main conundrum, rather, that the book is experimenting with. Um, I know most people tend to want to talk about <laughs> part one or the epilogue, just because it's a, a little bit more interesting to tie together the the whole thing as opposed to the middle parts, which I understand. However... The idea of the influence of the environment on the individual is, is something that's that's really interesting, uh, and that obviously Dostoevsky is working a lot with through this as he's kind of debating with Chernyshevsky, who really, really doesn't like... I know the footnote that talks about... The footnote from this part of the book that I have really doesn't do it justice. Uh, he refers to uh, Chernyshevsky as Dostoevsky's contemporary, and I was like, it doesn't... You know, it... My problem with reading this book and seeing the footnotes in it is I'm just like, you know, technically you are right with what you're saying, but there is just, mm, you could color it so much more <laughs> fun, you know? <laughs> Contemporary is a very is a very mild way of saying it. Yeah, it it is. Um, I So I have a, an article that I read for this week by Anna Berman called Dostoevsky and the Missing Marriage Plot. Uh, this is also from the Dostoevsky at 200 open access book. Uh, well, collection of essays, which if you're interested in crime and punishment and want to learn a little bit more about it, you should definitely check out literally anything in this collection. It's all super wonderful. And part of what I found interesting in this as well is this is kind of, well, we call it the hot family <laughs> summer, but it is the family part, at least for now. It's kind of the first introduction that we're actually getting that's in the perspective of some of the individuals and not just letters. I mean, we still get a illusion letter, of course, but and it's interesting, there's a lot going on in this article that I don't have time to get to. Part of the what the article is looking at is, in these family dynamics, uh, why does Dostoevsky not really choose to include this this marriage plot that's usually really central for 19th century novels? So Berman posits this idea that really what Dostoevsky is looking at is not how families are created uh not through kind of a reproductive lens uh but what he's looking at instead is how families exist in the present what is required to kind of have have a family like what do those dynamics actually look like and berman kind of links in some Bakhtin, who's 20th century literary critic and so, so much more for 19th century literary studies or literary <laughs> studies in general. Um, the, the, the way that Dostoevsky kind of does this, it refutes what you would expect from the novel conventions of the time, which we talked a little bit with Katya Bowers uh, about um, when we were talking about kind of the form of the book. And Bakhtin has this kind of idea, which I don't know if I totally 100% agree with him on it, but I'm going to use it uh for my argument here because i like it and it works on this one so that's hmm. that's good literary <laughs> analysis huh um <laughs> so Bakhtin says that uh he, he has this idea that dostoevsky's novels are defined by what he says fundamental open-endedness um he he contrasts this to tolstoy and others uh when he's talking about uh conventionally literary uh conventionally hmm. monologic endings that most novels have uh, this idea that kind of, it's its a little bit vague, but just really, in a way, Dostoevsky doesn't give you what you want. Um, it is vague. He doesn't really, in my opinion, I don't know if he really answers his question. Um, there are a lot of questions still at play. And what's most important for me here is that actually the plot, in some ways, doesn't necessarily matter because it doesn't resolve the question. It is actually quite open-ended. Whether and I won't spoil any endings here, but whether Raskolnikov gets away with the murder, whether he confesses, whether he gets convicted, um, this one individual instance doesn't actually clear up his thesis that he lays out in this chapter. Um, again, it is fundamentally open-ended uh, as to whether this thesis could be proven or disproven. And I think that's kind of 
kind of the point that um, he's getting at is just that life, just like literature, is intended to be open-ended, and it's very difficult to kind of paint all of history and all of theory with just a couple brushstrokes, um, saying, you're, oh, I'm a socialist or I'm a rationalist. Um, really, it's you know, a critique of this kind of mentality as a whole. That's interesting. I think that's really fascinating because so the article that I was I was kind of bring, going to bring into this week is called Crime and Punishment as Philosophy by Knox Hill. Um, and this may sound almost almost like a reductive title because I think generally if you're going to ask is there a philosophy to crime and punishment at this point it, it is attained a status. Yeah, Hard to it, say. people would say yes, obviously yes. Now, Hill actually puts forth an argument that we should understand philosophy in multiple multiple dimensions. There's like I, I I don't remember the exact terms he uses, but there there is like direct engagement in philosophy, which would we we would recommend we would understand as like people who are engaging directly with it, and then he also engages with what he calls roughly a poetic philosophy. And poetic philosophy isn't the same as like reading uh, Sartre, Camus, who are well, actually, Sartre is a bad example. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about like Hegel or something who is who is engaging directly with with theories of ideas uh, and theories of 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 reality and it puts forth the idea that what Dostoevsky is doing here is a poetic philosophy because he's trying to engage with a lot of different ideas and in fact it's it's difficult to engage with poetic philosophy because the question then becomes if the author is making a point here where do we draw that point from do we draw it from implicit ideas that are being put forth by the text which can be um I, this is just personal commentary for myself here but which can be subject to individual like biases and reading it do we take it from people who are we take it from certain lines in the text and uh knox or hill puts forth the argument that that's this is a popular one but we really should consider is uh is a good zinger necessarily the philosophy the author is trying to put forth or is it just a character who has a good line right uh we've uh, one of our favorite things to harp on is uh what's that uh, line from steva all of life is made up of light and shadow or the beauty of life is is that it's made up of light and shadow which is a great zinger but of course in context it's his him defending his infidelity and it would be ridiculous to assume that that's what tolstoy is trying to assert to you um so then he puts forth this question to in, in crime and punishment uh of course we can easily read uh, take certain characters and say this is the right character this their the ideas they're putting forth are the ideas that tolstoy wants dostoevsky wants us to take away from this this text uh, but does that entirely hold up? Let's take the example of Lujin. Lujin is pushed back upon by Razumikhin. Um, and, and essentially what, what you know, uh, Raskolnikov dunks on him on is says, hey, your rationalist philosophy may allow for the murder of people. And, and Lujin is like, no, no, it wouldn't. Uh, and Raskolnikov essentially says, you know, the, the natural outcome of you saying our pursuit of rational self-interest um, of like that this is going to inherently bring up society means that you could kill those who are going to hold us back from that. But of course, the great irony there is that Raskolnikov's very own philosophy, which has actually driven him to real murder, does permit <laughs> violence against individuals, which is defended later on by, by Raskolnikov. Um, him, him saying that the, the violence done against individuals can be permitted by those transgressive supermen who are pushing society forward, not because the violence itself is good, but because it's necessary to put, push society forward. And that, that's an interesting, like, illusion... You know the the dunk the dunk on him is that his philosophies, rationalist philosophies, could lead to that. But also Raskolnikov's philosophies, although not understood as correct, like Raskolnikov uses that as a way to 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 use a vulgar common term, vulgar modern term, dunk on him about. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I think that would be his own. <laughs> um, and and even then, like Razumikhin, maybe we understand him as the correct figure to to look at. And of course, not every character that's important has been introduced yet. So this is something that's going to develop more with time. Um, you know, is he is he the character we should take philosophy away from? That when he talks, he's correct. But even even he gets contradicted by, for example, in this chapter, Porfiry contradicts him on his on on Razumikhin's perspective on crime as an environmental cause. Um, you know, who is who is meant to be right in this case? And I, I can't exactly like bring this argument uh, to its to the, its fullest because part of it includes things that have not yet happened but in many a lot of these arguments Dostoevsky leaves unfinished to a certain degree or the implication is what finishes them so I think that's one of the interesting things is reading this book as poetic philosophy um as as Hill points out what are you supposed to take away from this 
there are a lot of narratives which are popular, and maybe you could take that away from it. Uh, there are there are arguments which are never explicitly refuted, which it's probably pretty apparent Dostoevsky doesn't believe, but does leave it like leave the argumentation just there without explicitly refuting it. So I think that's you know I think it's it's pretty it's hard to read Crime and Punishment and not come away without thinking that this is trying to teach you a moral lesson to some degree. But I think we we should refrain from trying to look at it at, at too simplistically and 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 rather look at it as. Uh, grappling with a lot of different ideas which maybe make a lot of sense right like uh, Raskolnikov's idea I'm not saying I personally buy into Raskolnikov's idea of Superman theory I I, I very much don't but it, it has a lot of rational uh, like a lo- it has a logistical straightforwardness under it which is frankly never refuted uh, it rather it's the circumstances which are supposed to refute it and you'll see that the kind of unspoken things which which sometimes it, the the way that spoken philosophy and unspoken philosophy do engage with each other as we get further into the book, which I think is something to pay attention to. I also say it's pretty hard to, to judge uh, intention sometimes too, because when we say like, I mean, this is often attributed to Raskolnikov, like, oh, this is, of course, Raskolnikov's idea. It's, you know, this is what he's testing. This Even I said that um, not that long ago. But I mean, it's not mentioned before this, unless I'm mistaken. He, he does talk about uh, the conversation he overhears in a bar, which is very similar to this idea. But Honestly, this idea is not um, the first time this idea has ever been put out there, of course. And so, you know, what's interesting to me is like, you know, is this really, is Raskolnikov trying to test us? Is this what his, is this his goal to see if this is really the case? Uh, It tends to be like a dominant reading that I see of this book. But what if he did forget that he published this, you know? Yeah. What if he did send this off months ago and now this is actually the first time that it's, you know, it's coming back. It's like, oh, shoot, I did publish that, like, you know, my crappy thesis. Oh, nice. (laughs) And now I'm being interrogated because of it. And I mean, especially when we talk in this book about the role of coincidence uh, and and how much that actually drives the plot forward. I I don't know that I would be right necessarily to say, okay, uh, Raskolnikov wrote this as a student. He published it and then he went out in the world to see if it was actually true. Maybe, but also, what if it was another one of these coincidences? I think that there's a, a case to be made for that, and I think that I, I don't know that everybody necessarily lives by what they write their undergraduate <laughs> theses or master's theses or even PhD dissertations on. It may just be something that's interesting to you. Uh, it doesn't have to be a you know a system that you want to live on. Yeah. And in some ways, even even within him, within himself, uh, Raskolnikov is is building on this. He, he obviously, to some degree, this is something he's internalized. Even if he doesn't actively remember writing this article, uh, but this kind of philosophy is something he's internalized, and it's something that he kind of builds upon within himself. When he's talking about these transgressive individuals, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I think he's citing the ones that stick out to me. Um, I, I remember are, are uh, Napoleon and Muhammad. Two, two characters who, who oppose, you know, previous orders to create new orders of their own, especially focusing on Napoleon. And that's like Napoleon is kind of his main reference for this kind of transgressive historical individual. But at the same time, he's like, the, the, the great and awful things Napoleon did were on a national scale. I killed a pawnbroker. Is that a transgressive act? Or is it, as I characterized to Porfiry, of course, you know, there's certain maybe maybe young and foolish men who think, I am a transgressive individual, so I can commit these acts of violence and mistake the, the committing of violence for the fact of the transgressive individual's ability to change history, which may involve the committing of violence. He doesn't explicitly say, am I that young, foolish individual? Uh, but in thinking about his act, he does go back and forth to think, between thinking, I killed an old woman, what's the point of that? And I didn't kill an old woman, I killed an idea, I transgressed, and I therefore showed myself to be beyond mere laws i I, i'm sure myself to be someone who can oppose those ancient laws which may need to be opposed to progress human history but it's again it's not i think it's also really difficult to separate it all out and something i've been thinking about as well and i didn't really think i guess as much about on the last one because you just kind of forget about it but he didn't just kill the pawnbroker i mean he killed lisaveta too that's it's that's not great. You might be able to argue, all right, you know, I got rid of the pawnbroker. People don't like pawnbrokers. They perform a bad role in society. Therefore, my murder is good. Um, but what, I mean, what do you do when you kill a person that's compared to an innocent horse being beat on the street? Pretty tough to make your argument that, you know, what you've done is going to really, you know, perform any social progress in that case. 
Which is interesting because even he kind of indirectly engages with that idea in saying, at some point mm-hmm. he remembers that he killed Lizaveta and he says, it's so strange that I think of her so abstractly as if I didn't kill her. Like, she, I remember the pawnbroker quite apparently. Uh, I, I think about that quite often, but Lizaveta doesn't come up that often, even though, again, as he thinks, I killed her. He did do that. that that's an interesting kind of divide that even he somewhat acknowledges. It's interesting. I think there's a lot in this chapter. Not only is it the drunkest, <laughs> it's an interesting one. It's a little bit hard to to talk about all these issues, though, having only been about halfway-ish through the novel. So I I look forward to getting towards the end, especially when we have some of our wonderful guests coming up that'll be able to talk a little bit more about some of these issues mm-hmm. with us. Yes, I think that'll be good for developing extremely helpful for developing some of these ideas that are being built up slowly over the course of these parts absolutely well we could keep hypothesizing for a long period of time but i think it might be more helpful to just put a pin in some of the ideas we're having now and and come back to it when we are when we have more context as we go uh, as we go along and especially in this case with uh, the introduction of uh nobody's favorite characters vidragailov in part four Matt, I'd ask you what we're reading next episode, but I've already kind of mentioned it. I guess it's it's part four. We're reading part four of Crime and Punishment. Yep, it's out there in the open by now. You've probably guessed it. It's not much of a secret. We are going to be reading part four of Crime and Punishment, which is really exciting. Um, and for the rest of the uh, the series, uh, parts six and seven, something to uh, look forward to. We've got some guests lined up. If you're planning on reading along with us and our, our future guests, be sure to pick up your copy of Crime and Punishment through the affiliate links on our website. Yes, absolutely. We're looking forward to it as much as you hopefully are. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, and Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, Roland, Elise, Mysterious Donor Dude, Joanne, Yitza, Drew W., Stephanie, and Julie. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school does not pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used on this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.